I think we should assume positive intent, but I don't think we should allow people to get away with anything. Intent with accountability. People are going to say the wrong things. We're all saying the wrong things because we're all learning and stuff changes. One day you're like, okay, I got it. And then the next week you're like, oh, I just said the total wrong thing in the meeting and I didn't mean to. That is something that happens to everybody, no matter who you are. Nobody's perfect. It's cringy. You don't know how to get over it, but you gotta. Hello, everyone. This is Jolene May, your host for the Diversity Podcast where we talk with real people doing real work in the diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging space. If you want to explore what people are doing right, what positive impacts are happening, or even how positive changes can be done, you're in the right place. We welcome you to join us. Today, we have an awesome and bright guest with us, Kimberly Singletary. Kim is a diversity, equity, and inclusion manager for Advancing Health Equity, a national nonprofit based out of the University of Chicago. She is a visual rhetorician studying the impact of images on how people regard Americans of color overseas and is an expert in coordinating media and communications to reflect an anti-racist, inclusive presence. Kim is passionate about the ways in which DEI can create valuable moments where we can witness how a diverse workforce ultimately creates a more engaged, informed, aware, and dynamic team that is more equipped to respond to pressure. Kim has lived in six countries studying abroad. They include Denmark, England, Japan, Austria, and Germany. She has also driven the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile twice as an official hot dogger and plays a capoeira. She says badly, but she loves it anyway. So welcome, Kim. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. All right. So let's go ahead and get started. First, tell me a little bit about your story and what your personal mission is for DEI. I'm actually really new to the DEI field in an official capacity, right? So this is actually my first job as a DEI manager and communications manager. But outside of this position, I had loads of other experience doing public speeches. I worked with Oregon Humanities doing a traveling program talking about issues of race and equity in the state of Oregon. I've taught for many years. So I've done a lot of related work within the field while not actually being inside the field as a paid full-time salary person. For me, my mission is to create, this is a very loaded word, authentic opportunities for BIPOC individuals within workspaces, be it corporate, educational, nonprofit, because I really do believe at the end of the day, our boardrooms should actually reflect diversity of the United States of America. And they clearly don't. What drives me every day is trying to figure out ways that we can make space for people who come from marginalized communities in some ways to affect how companies, businesses, how they do their work and how they attract talent and how they exist in the world. What I see how you went from step one all the way to the top. So I appreciate that holistic approach that you shared with me. Um, let's talk a little bit about your work and specifically about the perceptions of U.S. Blackness in international culture. I'd like to know more about what you found and how that impacts your work today. When I talk about U.S. Blackness overseas, it comes from my work as a visual rhetorician. I look at how images contain traces and narratives from history that can be seen all the way into the present. So Black people have been unfairly maligned in the media, no matter how media was defined or what it looked like in what context for generations. What I found is that stereotypes about Blackness, and in particular U.S. Blackness, have traveled all over the world. And it doesn't matter what language people speak, 
what culture they're from, what country they're in. The same stereotypes are picked up country after country after country. And that goes for all the countries I've worked in as a teacher, as a researcher, and the countries I just studied in as a student. So what happens is, is that actually greatly impacts not just Black Americans who are traveling abroad, but also Black people who are living in those countries. Because the assumption is, one, that they must be American because they're Black, right? Or they're they're brown in some way. And that's a way that people use, that kind of assumption of Americanness is what people use to distance them from their own country. Well, you can't be French or German or Japanese or whatever because you're Black, you're American, right? And that's super unfair to those people. The Black population in those countries also have to deal with those negative stereotypes coming from America. So I talk a lot about how stereotypes clearly are bad, but also stereotypes that travel can impact not just the perception of Americans, but the perception of people in other countries. And it affects their lived experience. It affects how they move in spaces and it affects their sense of self. Wow, that's very deep. And I appreciate you sharing all those details because me, I'm learning a lot from just listening to you as well. And it's kind of opening my consciousness. It's difficult for us, especially people who may not be exposed to international traveling and different places to be aware of the stereotypes that happen and maybe occur across national lines. And it's so interesting because I do know, I think that international companies, they are trained to be aware of those nuances, but just taking a dive into how stereotypes may exist exist across cultures and across uh, international lines is a concept that is so new for me, at least. So hearing you talk about it is very interesting. It makes me want to learn more about it. My next question is for companies who are operating internationally, maybe there's somebody who has to work across those lines and they need to know those nuances. What are some nuances that they should be aware of or some tips, especially to assist people of color across national lines feel welcome so that they can be their genuine selves and come to the table and ultimately collaboration can occur. Absolutely. And I think that the biggest thing, and and I would say that this isn't just for Black people. I study Blackness because they were like, you've got to choose something or else you're going to be in school for 50 years and nobody wants to support that. So (laughs) I was like, okay, Blackness in Germany, I can do this. This is not just about Black people. This is also people from with an Asian heritage background. This is people who have a South American background, right? The questions that I'm going to tell you right now, I'm sure that every single BIPOC person has heard these in some way. Companies should make a very big effort to avoid the kinds of questions such as you speak X language so well because the assumption is that they must be from somewhere else and you know they're not really American, German, French, whatever because they look different from the assumed nationality of the country, right? And that assumed nationality is almost always white. I might say, are both your parents from here? So I get that a lot. It's like, well, yes, both of my parents are American or both, you know, and the assumption is, oh, well, you speak German. So you couldn't have learned that in a school. One of your parents must have taught you that because you speak at a level that says, that it must be, and it's definitely not native. My German needs some work, but it implies that your intelligence or your cultural knowledge, your language ability comes from a parent or a family member and not your own hard work and ability. Those are certain kinds of things that you would be careful of within the initial interviewing processes, making sure the HR team understands, making sure that the company has a procedure for, do we make space for employees to say that these things are happening? And then also, what's our action plan for when they are happening? I think also there is a tendency for companies to say, oh, we're so glad you're here. This is amazing. Here's a couple diversity projects that like we didn't feel comfortable doing. Spend the money and hire somebody. Do not ask 
your people of color who are working there to suddenly take on the projects that has happened to me in spaces I've been in, where it's like, oh, hey, do you think that you could come up with some ideas? I was like, I could come up with some ideas. And this is what I do on the side, but I'm not being paid extra to do that. I'm not being given a work release to do those things. So some of that is, is there's an expectation that your BIPOC employees are going to want to take the lead on creating these new and wonderful inclusionary activities. You're expecting them to have an interest in that. You're expecting them to do it, but then you're not paying them or you're not giving them a work release. You're just adding on to their existing work functions while not rewarding them for that work that they're doing. And it also, that has a, a very clear, it sets that person off from others and not always in a good way. It can make them feel even more marginalized because, well, you had all this time to do it, but you only started to think about it once I showed up. And so now I become the brown person who is in charge of the diversity stuff when I really just want to write some emails. I appreciate your transparency because the way you're honest, it's very welcoming and just matter of fact and positive. It's not like you're trying to be like, oh, how dare you? But you know, still, I think what I want to definitely acknowledge is from what you're saying, I'm gathering that it puts people of color in this very uncomfortable position where they're navigating in between expectations of what they should be doing and assumptions of their identities and about language and why they perform language well. It makes me feel sad for them. And it's like, oh, because I can speak this language well, now I am being marginalized or there's an assumption of my history versus asking me and getting to know me. Yeah. And that sounds very uncomfortable. So I empathize with you and maybe some experiences you've had. I do actually want to ask, and if you're comfortable, has there been a time that you found yourself in those positions and how did you navigate through that? Right. Absolutely. Well, I will tell you, I have never said no. And that is a problem. I'm working on it. The year 2022 is the year of no probably be the year of like, well, maybe because I am a person I want to commit. And as an academic, I was on, I was searching for a tenure track job. I was almost always year after year having to re-up a contract or I'd have to move. That's a lot. It takes a lot out of you. So when I'm somewhere, I barnacle. I'm in a space. I barnacled. I want to stay there. So if my boss says, hey, can you come up with some ideas or resources? I'm going to go, oh, okay. Because I want to be there. I want to do well. I want my boss to recognize that I want to be there and do well. And I also might be like, nobody else is going to do this or they're not going to do it in a way that I feel might be sensitive. I'm just going to do it. I'm not going to speak for all the people in all the world, but I do know that there are, are people who do feel that pressure in which they say, okay, I don't want to do this, but I also want this to be done. I also want the company to take more energy in looking at issues of diversity inclusion. And maybe if I start this, it can snowball into something better. In terms of my own experience, you know, I'm often asked if my mother is German and that goes and what they, by German, they mean is my mother white. And that goes back to deeper history relating to mixed race children in Germany from black US soldiers and white German women. And it's a really interesting history that people should pay attention to and should read more about. But part of that has to do with cultural context cues in Germany. And it's always been frustrating to to navigate as a person of color because like, no, I'm American. And then you get what? Really? But where are your parents really from? Because of the stereotypes I talked about about blackness, in which they say, usually it comes out as, but you're smart, but you speak so well, but you're really well-traveled. So your parents, are they Jamaican? Are they from the Caribbean? Are they African? Nobody ever connects me with America in a way that I find very frustrating and diminishing. It diminishes my actual identity to the point that you just sort of pull back 
even though they're trying to be complimentary, it is actually really insulting. And that's not just Germans. I've had it in all the countries I've lived in. Now, in terms of things that have happened at work, different work environments, I have, you know, said, okay, well, how about we do some projects or how about we do this? And I volunteered for those projects, knowing that I wasn't going to be paid, knowing that I wasn't getting a work release, but I did it because I wanted to be in a space where I'm like, be the change you see in the world. This is the change. And sometimes it did come at the expense of my ability to do all of the things I wanted in an appropriate amount of time. Sometimes it was just a lot of overwork and overtime. In the end, more positive things happened and I was happy with that. Yeah, I totally understand where you're coming with that. And going to what your response was, it just highlights to me more and more how people of color really sounds like in the experiences you've shared, walk this fine line. This is my identity, but how do I like talk about it like in a way that will be received so that I can be myself as well and be accepted for who I am without that discomfort in preparation for what the response will be. So for those employers out there or the coworkers out there that want to assist and help their coworker of color feel like they can be themselves at work, maybe you've even experienced something like that. What are some tips or advice you can give them so that they can be part of that equation to be a part of the inclusive workspace? We do have to assume at least a base level of positive intent. I think we should assume positive intent, but I don't think we should allow people to get away with anything. Intent with accountability. People are going to say the wrong things. We're all saying the wrong things because we're all learning and stuff changes. One day you're like, okay, I got it. And then the next week you're like, oh, I just said the total wrong thing in a meeting and I didn't mean to. That is something that happens to everybody, no matter who you are. Nobody's perfect. It's cringy. You don't know how to get over it, but you gotta. And so for me, I think what companies can and should do is they need to really review the language that they're using on their websites and their dissemination materials in the emails that they send, you know, in the all company meetings or whatever. Think about the language. Has the language changed? Are you still using outdated language like the word minority? Yes, we have minority businesses. Yes, we have people who refer to themselves minority, but people are really starting to move toward people of color or BIPOC or something else to that effect. And so we need to think about, is that a word we still want to be using or do we just want to sort of move forward in a different way? So pay attention to changes. Read up on the changes. Maybe don't ask the one brown person in the room what those changes might be. I think companies and employees can also do this. Don't wait for your company. If they're not doing it, don't worry about it. Do it yourself. Create opportunities for organic conversations, right? Book clubs. I love the idea of literary salons. It's just like a thing. I'm like, everybody just gets together, read an article, then you discuss it. That's awesome. Think about a day of service. If it's not for Martin Luther King Day, then think about a day of service where everybody in the whole company, if the company doesn't support it, then maybe you talk to your immediate boss, your division head and say, can we do something where our division does a day of service and it still be connected to our job and we'll still get credit for working for that day? And you do something in the community. You can do like volunteerism as in general. One thing that people overlook are the months, the celebration months. This is Hispanic Heritage Month. That's great. Congratulations. They send an email and that's it. But you could have every single day your HR department sends out something interesting about one of the countries recognized in that celebration month. Did you know that in Guatemala they do this and that? Did you know that in the United States, U.S. Latinos and Latinas make up this much of the population, right? Doing something that relates that every day your organization is learning and building their knowledge is a really small way for people to step out of that zone that they're always in. 
out of the bubble and learn, but just don't expect your BIPOC employees to do all the writing. There is a lot that you said. And ultimately also, I saw this theme of exposure, right? And how are you exposing your employees in the light that different cultures should be exposed? I love the, did you know? I love the discussion groups. I've also heard a lot of success stories of discussion groups, maybe finding what your employees are interested in and centering a group of discussion around that. So it's not just reinventing and trying to spin your wheels on making something happen that isn't really meant to happen as well. I think that's a hard line for companies to walk as well. It's like, okay, there's so many people, it's hard to navigate through all of this. But at the end of the day, it's going to make the company more adaptable and withstand the pressures of time that we are currently going through. That And also talking about language. I want to talk about that. So you have a degree in rhetoric. People, you know, I think there's many definitions of rhetoric people have out there. So how would you define rhetoric and what importance do you see it having on the perceptions that affect DEI? Hello, listeners. Time for a quick break to give your brain a quick rest. If you have not done so already and would like to support our mission, please follow our podcast, leave a review, or share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. Thank you so much for listening in, and let's get back to the conversation. Essentially, rhetoric is the art of persuasive speech. It's an analysis of argument, social discourse, and how that discourse can persuade or affect a populace. When I say I'm a visual rhetorician, I'm looking at how images persuade. How do they create in us something that changes our minds or that makes us think in a new way? And with rhetoric in the DEI field, I see them as very like inextricably intertwined, right? Because in this moment, I'm trying to get people to go, okay, I hadn't thought about it that way. And I've got to, we call it the rhetorical situation. I've got to capitalize on this moment on this tiny window of time to get someone to go, "Eh, okay, okay, you know, like thinking about it. They may not necessarily agree with me, but maybe they're going to take what I said and hear me and think about it. This is something that we always say, my my advisor told me when I was teaching. In some fields, you can tell if people get it. They start getting the right answers. They go, oh, click. They got the right equation. They can add now. I am not that person. In the humanities, it's a little harder. It's a longer tail. You'll teach somebody something and you have no idea if it worked if they got the point until maybe you like see them in the news somewhere and you're like, oh, like I had this really great rhetoric class. And you're like, yes, you did. You did. Right. I think this is the same thing with rhetoric and DEI. A lot of what I'm trying to do is persuade people to think about diversity and inclusion a little bit differently or to think about, is there another way that we could approach this issue or problem that would bring more people into the fold? Is there something we could be doing that could be even more inclusive that would show that we are inclusive rather than tell people that we are inclusive. So that's how I see using my work in persuasion and argumentation inside of the field. I love that you brought it up. It's not just about politics too, because you're going to come into rhetoric throughout communication. You're talking about the goal that you carry with rhetoric is having somebody, okay, like actually think about it. And I like that because it's not just about, hey, you're supposed to be on my side. It's black or white. I want to ask you about maybe your own experience. Was there a time that you maybe witnessed something on media or maybe in real life communication where you felt inspired to take action or do better? It like impacted you in a positive way. Okay. So that's a really good question because I'm like, oh, 
all of my all of my experiences have been deeply negative. And then I'm like, we need to change something. Right. So I mean, for me, there are a lot of people of color with PhDs who are pushed into adjunct work or temporary contracts. You know, there's been more like the LA Times has had a whole article about people fighting for um, better contracts for adjunct instructors. And it's not just people of color, clearly, who are circulating in the adjuncts pool. But as a person of color who was, that's something that I took really seriously. For me, I paid attention because I would go in these job interviews and somebody would say something either completely microaggressive or outright racist to me. And it was just really frustrating. Like I had somebody ask me if I could teach white students as well. And it was in a job interview and I had to suck it up and put on my face and just say, you know, I can teach all of the students and I have mostly taught it at predominantly white institutions with good effects. For me to be in that position where that was seen as a perfectly normal question to ask a human interviewing for a job and nobody else in the room had any interjection, had any objection to the question as if it were normal. I was like, okay, something needs to be done. More training is necessary. Because these are highly educated people who just asked me if I knew how to teach white students because I work on U.S. blackness. Excuse me, thinking about American identity, it's completely separate. It's a separate field. In my head, I was like, okay, this has now been, you know, one in a string of interviews in which somebody has asked me something like this. I would like to be a person who creates change in this way. In that situation, it would probably be really easy for many people to take it really negatively and maybe not take that action. But I like how for you, it stimulated something within you to do something about it and make be part of the change. Because being part of the change is difficult, especially like we were talking about earlier with people of color who are like kind of the person that like, oh, you do something, right? So like, how do you make a change, but also in the right atmosphere with the support that you need and advocate for the support you need? Right. And you know, how do you do it in a way that also also promotes work-life balance because in my, again, as we said, I'm not a person who just says, I have too many things on my plate today. So what happens is, is that I was so frustrated and I was so irritated and angry that I was like, okay, how am I going to channel this anger into something else? And that's when I started doing more public speeches. And that's when I started doing, you know, seeking out opportunities where I would give maybe public lectures on things. I said, okay, if I can't change that person's mind, because clearly I didn't get that job, maybe I can change somebody else's mind who does have hiring potential at another company. So they're not asking these kind of ridiculous questions completely asinine to other people who come into a space looking for a job. So the next thing I want to talk about is for those who, you know, we're talking about unconscious bias, really, right? And how rhetoric does play into that and it does expose that. So what are some maybe starting steps or simple tips that we can do to start overcoming those maybe subconscious negative perceptions and moving towards a mental space of growth and openness? I think that's a really awesome question. For me, I just read. I think people need to read far more expansively and be voracious readers. We have a tendency within our social media circles. It is a moment in which all of the things we believe are essentially being parroted back to us depending on who you follow and why. So I would encourage people to start to step away from the social media platforms in which you're only talking to people who already agree with what you're saying. I would encourage them to read other outlets, start reading things, read books, read articles, read magazines that maybe have a completely different perspective and read them deeply. That's one thing. And then also, I think the, the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, that was a watershed moment for people to actually start saying, maybe I am kind of biased. Go to the library, find books written by people of color about how racism is functioning in their lives, about how it has impacted them. You can find it in all sorts of fields, in the tech field, in academia, you can find it business. Find something that relates to the work that you're doing on a day-to-day
day-to-day basis. And then look for those authors and read. If you can't find a book club, go on Goodreads or go on one of the things, one of the the many, many websites and see if you can get into a conversation with people who also have read that book to talk about what they've noticed. Maybe meet new friends. Basically be a knowledge seeker, be a lifelong learner. There's no way that we know everything right now. And also I think that just looking at the mediums out there, there's a lot of things that are accessible to us. And sometimes it's easy to get distracted, right? And that's okay. But definitely remind yourself that go seek some knowledge. The last question I have for you is, can you tell us about an experience you had where you witnessed maybe even a small change enable a positive outcome at work? I didn't think it was a small change. I was like, oh, I had asked some people I had been working with, you know, they had materials and I was looking over their materials and I said, well, you know, is it possible that we could be slightly more inclusive to the trans community? Can we use different words? Can we potentially think about using person instead of gendered pronouns, et cetera? Is there something else that we can do? And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, we can do that. I was just super cool. And I was like, oh, I feel really awesome because it was something that the people were in that moment really receptive to hearing that. And they were like, okay, they had come to me and they said, well, you know, do you, do you have any ideas? And I said, well, here's one that could potentially work. And it's not like they were trying to exclude people in the trans community. They just hadn't thought about actively including them. Does that make sense? They weren't reaching out but they were saying, everybody's welcome. If we do a little bit more outreach, like effective thinking through it, then maybe more people might feel more welcome in this space. I don't know. I don't have the answers. Who knows? Maybe they won't. But, you know, maybe that small change could help other people feel like they are also included here. Yeah, I love that. And what I liked from your response was that it wasn't just reinventing the wheel because it's super easy to be like, oh, there's this new thing. Like we have to put this additional layer on, but instead taking a step back and looking, wait a second, there's something we're already doing, but just looking at that in a different way of using the term person or human or what the title is that's already there. So it's probably going to get more people at the table to use it. Not to say, you know, using different pronouns is something you shouldn't do, but it's just something I think that opens up accessibility for more seats at the table and for people to just read it as is objectionably, right? When you're reading things while still having that perspective in mind. Absolutely. Even just putting your pronouns at the end of your name in a Zoom chat, you know, that's something that my team at my current position, they do. And I love it. And I was like, oh, this is great. It's something so small. You just click the button and then you put in your preferred pronouns. And not only does that help people from misgendering other people, it also normalizes the idea that, you know, not everybody is going to go by what they may present as, and you just have to be cognizant of it. That's something so small that everybody can do. They can change their signature on their email to put in their pronouns at the end of their name. And that just helps. I can see how it would really, really bother other people to be consistently misgendered over and over and over. So if we just sort of be more sensitive to that, I think that that's a small change that everybody could make that would result in bigger ripples of change. It's just something that's so simple that can do a lot of things. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom on these nuances we have in today's media. It's time to close the conversation, but thank you so much, Kim, for coming to the table with us and discussing these really important topics. Thank you so much. I was really happy to be here. You know, it was a really great conversation. So thank you. Thank you for joining us today as we continue to explore how we can enable diversity at work. Follow us and get notified of our latest episodes. Also, we want to hear from you. Please like, rate, and review us on your podcast app or wherever you're listening in. If you want to contact us, please visit diverseek.com 
That is D-I-V-E-R-S-E-E-K.com. This episode was produced by Madhu Nair, edited by Jonathan Dalek, researched by Jolene May, music composed by Nicholas Lang, and our production team includes Keisha Williams, Prashant Balbar, and Maria Corina. I am your host, Jolene May, and you have been listening to Diverse Seek.